The plan is that we're going to do Tanya again. But we're going to release some of the pressure. Because what we've been doing is trying to keep up with Chitas. And we've done it. Two whole cycles. Which is, I think, quite an achievement. We're not repeating that again. We're just going to learn Tanya. We're going to follow the order of the Tanya. Sort of. At least that's the initial plan. But we'll go more slowly. We'll get a little bit more into the ideas. There'll be more time for some discussion, perhaps. And uh, most importantly, people will feel less overwhelmed. In any case, so we're going to begin the Tanya again. And of course, I would like to begin with, with some history. And instead of starting with the Alter Rebbe, with the Bishnei Zalman, I'd like to start with the Helika Baal Shemtif, The father, the founder of the Hasidic movement, the Holy Baal Shemtif. First, the story. When the Bashantif Bash- Bash- had to come into this world, Bashantif was born in the year 1698. Chayel, the 18th day of Elul, Tof Nun Ches, 5458, which is 1698. When the Bashantif had to come into this world, naturally his manifestation, his descent was not normal. It wasn't the typical process of a Nishama entering this world because he didn't come here for a typical purpose. He came here to, to create a new movement, a, a new inspiration in serving Hashem. So his neshama was very carefully selected. And there's a whole story about who his soul had been in a prior incarnation, which I'm not going to tell you so you can read it yourself. A little suspense, a little curiosity. Where can we read it? In the, in the bio, biographies of the Baal Shem, some of which are translated into English. But this story I will share with you. The Baal Shem, parents were very poor. They lived in a city called Tlust, which is someplace in the, in the Ukraine. It was called Podolye. I don't know what Podolye means. It's someplace down there. <laughs> Pardon? You're from there. And uh, they lived in a city called Tlust. Now, as was normal for cities in Eastern Europe, which were scattered, in those days they had huge stretches of what was called forest. There was a belief that forests never end. That's what they believed in those days. So communities were separated by great vast spaces. The result, of course, was that if, God forbid, there was an attack, if robbers or pirates or bandits would attack in a city, uh, the city was pretty much left to its own devices. To go mobilize people from someplace else was a virtual impossibility. So communities were very, very concerned with preservation. So they used to build castles and stone walls in in, in other parts of Europe. Poorer people couldn't afford to build castles and stone walls, so they would build moats. That means to say they would surround the city with a ditch. It was wide enough and deep enough to make traversing it inconvenient. So this was was an early warning system, and it, it gave the people inside the city an advantage. So if a group of people wanted to attack the town, they had to put up with the initial fire they would take as they were crossing the moat. Naturally, the moat had a bridge that was raised, a gangplank. They would raise it, they would lower it when they saw who was entering the city. And it, it was a way of preserving themselves. In every city in Eastern Europe, this was, I was in Russia, in Moscow. The city of Moscow is built in a circle. If you're a Muscovite, you know what I'm talking about. It's literally built in a circle. I remember there was a street called Sushovsky Val. It was a perfect circle. And it was explained to me that at one point, hundreds of years ago, that was the outer border of Moscow. And now it's like the little center of the city. And that Sushavsky Val had been a moat. The word Val means a moat. The moat was obviously filled in and they built a road. But this was normal. So Tlust, like every other city in Eastern Europe, had such a moat. Now the poorest people in town could not afford to build homes. So they would climb down into these moats and build the equivalent of shacks, shanties. They lived in the hole in the ground, literally. Just like, you know, poor people would build their shacks up against the wall, let's say, of the Kaisal Marovi, or, you know, you have in many places, in, in you know, Mexico City has a, a poor region, people just live on top of each other like this. So poor people built, uh, these, they lived in the ground. Now, of course, it's not healthy at all. It's always moist down there, and it's probably very cold and so forth. But you're protected from the elements. It was easier to build um, lodging that was 
It could be, you could survive, but it was not a life. I mean, it was literally living in a hole in the ground. The Russian word, the Ukrainian word for these holes in the ground was akup, akupi. When the Balshemtiv would sign his name, he would sometimes sign his name as Yisrael Balshem of Tlust, and he would sometimes sign his name Yisrael Balshemtiv of Akup. And people would wonder, where was he born? <laughs> the answer was he was born in Tlust, but within Tlust he was born in a hole in the ground. And the Balshemtiv wrote it, I guess, to indicate, you know, how meager his beginnings had been. Balshemtiv's parents lived in the Yakup; they lived in a hole in the ground. They were very, very poor. In spite of that. They were unusually generous, and they were very, very involved in Achasus Archim. Their home was always open. They always had guests, because the guests were even poorer than they were, if you can imagine that. And people who would go to Tlust for Shabbos always knew there was some place you can get a piece of bread by the Bashantas parents. Bashantas parents were very old. They'd never had children. According to one version in, in a text from previous Rebbe, which is based on a, a manuscript from the Yalta Rebbe, the Bashantas parents were the same age as Avram and Sada when the Baal was born, 190 respectfully, respectively, which means it was not at all biologically explicable how the Baal was conceived and born in the first place. And this is the story. It was Shabbos, and all the people in Tlust were in Shul, and a Jew marches into the Shul. With a beard and payas and a yarmulke, clearly he had come from outside the city, which meant that he was Machal Shabbos, he desecrated the Shabbos, because the nearest town was way beyond the Trum. He had must have walked many miles, which is an Aveda. It's a sin. And maybe carrying a bag too, I don't know. In those days, there was no such thing as a secular Jew. There was either a religious Jew or a Mushumet or an apostate. There was no such thing as not religious Jews. Either were from or you weren't Jewish. So their model, their mindset, their attitude towards Jews who were not religious was they're not Jewish. And when this man walked into the shul, wherever he would go, people would just walk away from him. And Rebbe uh, Yezid, the Bashemta's father, sees how shunned this person is. So he walked over to him and he greeted him. Naturally, as soon as he greeted him, there was a big uh, whispering going on all over the shul. He's talking to the goy. And the more people distanced themselves from this person, the more Rebbe Yezid embraced him. And he sat up next to him. He took care of him. After davening, all of his guests were coming home and Blizzard walked arm in arm with this, quote, Goy, and everybody else was sort of like lagging behind, wondering how could you be so nice to this kind of a person. He brought him to his home. He sat down next to him. He gave him an extra piece of hard bread. I don't know, whatever it was they ate, but they didn't eat much. And uh, he was really very kind to this person. After Shabbos, and this Jew says to the I need to talk to you. He pulls him aside and he tells him, you should know that I am Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet. And I've come from heaven to test you. And the reason for this test is because a special soul has to come into this world with a very, very special mission. And that mission is to teach a new way of serving God predicated on the foundation, on the essence of Ava Sisra, of love of a fellow Jew, which can be interpreted, if you will, as being what I think it really is, a shift of emphasis. The center of Yiddishkeit is not Yiddishkeit, the center of Yiddishkeit is Yidin. A new, that's what Hasidus does. Hasidus has taken the emphasis from the mitzvahs and the Torah to the Yid. It doesn't mean the Jew doesn't have to keep the mitzvahs, but it means it's more about the Jew than about Judaism. This is no question, this is, this is a radical and novel and very original insight which is at the center at the core of Hasidus and he says to Rebbe Yezer you have passed the test and you should know you will have a child and I don't know if he was told this or not but he named that child Israel Yisrael because it is the name of the Jewish people and the idea of the Baal name was to call every Jew just like when a person faints you whisper their name into the ear you sometimes can revive them the Helika Baal name was Yisrael because his presence was calling to every Jew to wake them up from a condition of faith, from a condition of, of uh, immobility, of dysfunction. This is the appearance of the Bahelika Balshamta. Hasidus is Yiddishkeit. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's part of Yiddishkeit, part of our religion. Yiddishkeit and Torah 
are discussed a lot in, in, in mystical works, in Kabbalah. And it, it gets kind of hard to describe how we should relate to Yiddishkeit, how we should relate to godliness. And for lack of words, permit me to say this. Yiddishkeit in general, and Hasidus in particular, is a power. It's an energy. It's a tremendous, tremendous force. It's a holy force. It's a holy possibility that is at its core, in its essence, very, very raw. It's very, very powerful. But it's very, very plain. And just as God Almighty gave Moshe Rabbeinu the Torah, gave Moses the Torah, and Moses wrote down the, the scripture, the Chumash, and he gave us the possibility of interpreting that Torah called Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah, Moshe did not come from heaven with the Talmud and with the Shachan Aruch, with the Book of Laws. He came down with a power, with a possibility to make the Torah practical, to interpret and to apply the, 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 book, the book of the Chumash, the Mikra, the scriptures, to a useful form. So Moshe gave us a power. And over the course of our history, we've, we've tapped into that power. Interpreting the Torah, extracting the practical laws, as living as practicing Jews. So over the course of history, God has given such powers to certain individuals. Um, Rabbi Shimon Bayechoy revealed as it was given such a power, such a possibility. Darizal, who revealed a much more advanced stage in Kabbalah, was given such a possibility, such a power. And I would say the same can be said of great, you know, you could say the same of Rashi and of Rambam and of Yakiva. They were given a special koyach, a special possibility to add a new dimension to Yiddishkeit. It's not Chas Shalom new in the fundamental sense, but it's new in the sense that it opens up new possibilities of finding greater depth, greater meaning in the existing Torah. And the same is of course said in Medrash about Mashiach. It says in Medrash, Mashiach is going to teach a new Torah. It doesn't mean a new book. It means a new power, a new possibility within the existing Torah. Mashiach will expose a new insight, a new message, which begins with a special, special power. And the Baal Shem Tev was given Hasidis. He was given this special power. But this power is raw. The job of a person like the Baal Shem Tev, as, let's say, the job of a person like Rashbi or like Darizal or like Deramba, is to take this power and make it functional, make it work. In other words, Hashem gives him a koyach. It's a godly power. It's a very great energy which has an intellectual component, it has a spiritual component, it has a practical component. But the power as it comes from heaven to earth is not developed. The neshama, this person, this individual, this soul, who came into this world and was given this gift, now has to create from this power a useful, functional model and form. Or to use a, I guess what we would call a dirty word in context, to create a movement. A movement does not just mean a following but it means an ideology, a philosophy that's functional, that works. And the vision of a person like the Baal Shem Tev is very, very simply this. I will not live forever. Nobody lives forever. The koyach that the Ebishter has given me was not given to me for me. The koyach that God Almighty gave me was given to me for the world. My purpose is that my gift should survive me. If a tzaddik comes into this world, a very special, special tzaddik, and is given this unbelievable power, and he inspires his generation, and that inspiration, that possibility, passes away with him, it was wasted. The whole idea of these tzaddikim, these very, very holy men, who Hashem gives these special powers to, is they must take this new koyach and create a form that not only is practical, but that it takes roots. It begins to take roots in the ground, the proverbial ground, the spiritual ground, and to, and to expand and to radiate and to grow and to become viable, to become sustainable, to become even what's called in Zayar, renewable, 
so that it should survive the life of that tzaddik. And if it survives the life of that tzaddik, that means it's been grounded, it's been brought into the world. And if it's brought into the world, it stays. It doesn't pass. Therefore, these great tzaddikim understood that their measure of success is not defined by how holy they are and how close to God they are. Those are easy things. They're holy people. <laughs> holy people don't have the same tests and struggles that you and I have. Their test is how effective they are is in giving others that koyach. And the only measure of their success is not themselves. Their only measure of their success when they see that they have created another person that's moved and inspired and transformed by the power that they have given that other person, when it takes root in another person, the Baal Shem Tov could say, Hasidus has a future. And if it takes root not in one person, but ten people, or a hundred people, or a thousand people, or ten thousand people, it has a broader future, a deeper future. These tzaddikim had short-term visions, but they certainly had long-term visions. Each of them understood that if they pass away, and they're moving past away with them, they, they, they failed. Because it's not about them and it's not about their time. It's about bringing what, what we call in our Chabad culture a new dimension of Torah into the world. To stay. And it doesn't stay in the Tzaddik. It stays in the common Jew. In the ordinary man. And this is what the Hashem purpose was. Hashem gave him an extraordinary possibility. He was a special person. He gave him extraordinary possibilities. He gave him Hasidus. It became the Hashem's function and his life's mission and work to take this koyach and to package it, to wrap it in garments that people could take and benefit from in their practical Yiddishkeit and practical Yiddishkeit lives. But not for the short term, but for the long term. In other words, every person that Hashem touched was the person that Hashem affected. But through that person, we have Hasidus. Through the people whom the Baal inspired and changed, Hasidus became real. Real means it's part of this world, it's part of the Torah on this planet, on this earth, which is where the Torah was given and where everything, you know, our good friend, the Yetzirah, makes us all so wonderfully important. And this was the mindset, this was the vision of the Baal this was the mindset, the vision of the Alter Rebbe, who wrote the Tanya, and so on. This was their idea, how to create a movement that would be permanent, that would survive. Because this is why Hashem created them. Hashem would not be happy for the Baal Shem Tev to have lived, inspired a generation of people, and his influence would pass with him. That was not the point. It wouldn't take root. So there's an interesting little story, which is in and of itself not that meaningful, but it indicates an interesting idea. There's a story brought in a book called Shifchei HaBal Shem Tev. Shifchei HaBal Shem Tev, the praise of the Baal Shem Tev. It is certainly translated in English. It's been published many times. It was a book that was written by a Jew who actually knew the Baal Shem Tev personally. It was written during the Baal Shem Tev's lifetime or shortly after his passing. It's considered the most authentic book of Baal Shem Tev's stories. I don't know how much you know about Hasidic lore, but there's an assumption that for every true story about the Baal Shem Tev, there's ten bogus ones. But this book is considered reliable because it was written very close to his passing. It was written actually in the 1860s. 1760s, when he passed away in the year 1760. And in this Sefer, there's an interesting story. How the Bashemtiv was looking for the key to Hasidus. Here is a Hasidic Rebbe whose entire identity is Hasidus, yeah, and he's looking for the key to Hasidus. In other words, the Bashemtiv needed something. There was a certain power he needed to access. They didn't have. So, using the various different tricks at his disposal, the Helika Bashemtiv asked in the heavens. Where can he find the key to Hasidus? The Mafteach for Teresa Hasidus. And he was told that the key to Hasidus is by the Samachmem himself, by the devil himself, by the source of all evil. So the Baal prayed and he brought the Samachmem down to this world in the likeness and the countenance of a gigantic black dog that stood outside the window of the Baal cottage and it raised its four paws up to the glass and was pounding against the window. And the Baal Shem Tev didn't speak to the dog, he spoke to the spirit in the dog and says, give me the key to Chassidus. So the Samach Mem says to the Baal Shem Tev the following, I have never been to earth personally, other than on two occasions. And there's two versions to this story. 
One version is, I haven't been here. The, first, the, the two times I was here was by the original sin, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the second time is when the, the first temple was destroyed. And the other version is that he was here twice, when the first temple was destroyed and the second temple was destroyed. How dare you not be afraid of me? All my work I do through my assistants, so my emissaries. Our wonderful friend, the Yates, that has only an assistant. If that's not an insult, I don't know what is. Right? <laughs> he says, how dare you not be afraid of me? So the Baruch Shem Tev says to the Samach Mem, I'm not afraid of you. Because my father told me before he passed away, I should fear nothing except for God himself. And I'll tell you that story soon, in detail. So Baruch Shem Tev Samach Mem, give me the key to Hasidus. So the story writes, that means this dog regurgitated, it threw up. And it symbolically represented giving up the key to Hasidus. And then the dog died. The spirit left. The details of the story are not that important. The details of the story, I suppose, need to be interpreted. But the point of the story is that Baal understood that there's a special power which is meant for him. He needs to acquire it. Once you have that power, you have to share it. And the Baal had a vision, had a plan, had an insight into how he intended to share that power. In other words, he was given Hasidus. The Hasidus, as the Baal Shem Tev himself had it, we will never know. Because to appreciate that godly power, the way the Baal Shem Tev received it, you have to be the Baal Shem Tev himself. Who was it, you know, Baal Shem Tev. But he packaged it. He delivered it. He found a way to share it. And before I talk to you about the packaging, before I talk to you about how the Baal Shem Tev shared it, and keep in mind that it's not simply a matter of sharing Hasidus, but preserving it, the Baal Shem Tev's purpose was that we should sit so many years after his passing. The Baal Shem Tev passed away in 1760. That means it's almost 250 years ago. That we should sit now and talk about his life, not about some ancient rabbi who once existed, but as somebody whose influence is current in our lives, that was his purpose then. And he achieved that permanence, he achieved that effect through the people he knew intimately, through the people he actually influenced directly. Their taking from the Baal Shem Tev were the roots that would grip the earth and keep Hasidus here. So that the Baal Shem Tev and his, his Torah, which was the Abishter's gift, God's gift, that is available to us through the creativity, through the work, and through the effort of the Hedekah Baal Shem Tev, forever and ever till Mashiach comes. But before I talk to you about his packaging, his technique, I need to tell you about Hasidus itself. What was this gift? And it's best illustrated with another story of the Hedekah Baal Shem Tev. I told you that the Baal Shem Tev was born to parents who were very old, who never had had children. And there's a very important story. Hashem's father passed away when he was very little. It's hard to know how little is little, but he may have been two. But the two-year-old Hashem was far more aware than many children much older than that. Hashem was a wounded child. He was not a normal child. And again, there's an essay from the previous episode which I mentioned earlier. The same document in which it says that the Hashem's parents were 190, then it says when the Hashem was three months old, he could talk and walk, which is biologically impossible. If you know anything about the development of the human brain, a baby till six months old is still developing their brain. You know, most animals develop their brains in utero. The human brain is so sophisticated um, that by the time the baby would need to be born, the head would be too big, it wouldn't be able to be born. So the baby is born not fully developed. The, literally, the first six months of a child's life, the baby's brain is not fully formed, which is why nourishment is so important during that period of time. So for a child at three months old to speak and to walk is not... Spoke sentences? Conversations. And walk is impossible. Walking is, happens in children at the age of one, approximately. Speech is at the age of two. It's not, it's not scientifically explicable. It's a miracle. Under such kid, it was not normal. For the age of two, he was unusual. But two is still little. Certainly physically little. And his father died. Passed away to Beliezer. 
before he passes away, his mother brings him to his father's bed. And the ancient Abeliezer puts his hands, his holy hands on his little son's head and he gives him a bracha. And he tells him these words. He says, Yisraelik, you should fear nothing other than God himself and you should love every Jew with all the depths of your soul. You should fear nothing except for God himself. You should love every Jew with all the depths of your soul. This was the Baal Shem Tev's father's <laughs> message to the Baal Shem. What's so interesting about this little statement is that this little statement actually is all of Hasidus. Because all of Hasidus can be summarized in two thoughts. One is a theological one and the other is a spiritual one. One is, a, is, a, is an intellectual one, and the other is a human one. The theological essence of Hasidus is what we call Achtus Hashem, Achtut Hashem. There is nothing besides for God. Period. Not only was everything created by God, it was created from God, and it is God. Everything is godly. This is the essence of Hasidus in terms of theology. Everything is godliness. And of course, what radiates from that are the beliefs in Hashkacha Pratis. God is involved in everything. There's no random. Everything is governed by Hashem directly. Which is the first half of that statement. Fear nothing except for God Himself because there's nothing worth fearing other than God Himself. So when the Samach Mem says to the Baal Shem Tev, how are you not afraid to bring me down into this world? He says very simply, my father told me when I was two years old not to fear you. <laughs> Only to fear God. You have no reality. Unless I fear you. Because when I fear you, I make you real. And the Balshanta said, I'm not afraid. And the other half of the statement is Avat Yisrael, love of a fellow Jew. Which means, on a little bit of a deeper level, the whole concept of the Jewish soul, which is the second core point of Hasidus. So, as a two year old, the Balshanta got, in a sentence, the whole Hasidus. Everything written by all the great Hasidic masters of the last two and a half centuries are expressions, are radiations of those two simple statements that a two-year-old heard from his father on his deathbed. Mamish! It's incredible but true. The, all the fancy, involved, intellectual analysis of the nature of the relationship between God and His creation, as Hasidus teaches, are rooted in the first half of that statement. And all the profound celebration of what a Jew is, with or without Yiddishkeit, is an expression of the second half of the statement that Helik Abba father told him. This is the essence of Hasidus. The essence of Hasidus is God is in everything. And God is in every Jew. You don't have to make the world godly, you have to expose the godliness within it. You don't have to make a Jew Jewish. You have to expose the Jew within him. That's all of Hasidus. It is, it is that simple. Now, obviously it's not that simple, but it is that simple. Now, Abba has this weapon, he has this power. He has to give it to people. Give it to people means to inspire people, to change their lives on the basis of this, these teachings, but more than the teachings, the power, the energy, the holiness that empowers the possibility of living accordingly. And the Baal Shem Tev had different types of followers. The only thing we know about the Baal Shem Tev was that he had lots of followers, many, many followers, lots and lots of people flocked to the Baal Shem Tev. For the most part, the people who flocked to the Baal Shem Tev were simple. But there was a significant group of people who came to the Baal Shem Tev, who were giants, great scholars, holy men, who in their own right were great rabbis and mystics. And they came to the Baal Shem Tev for something more, for something deeper. And to each person, the Baal Shem Tev needed to find a unique package, a unique way of sharing with them the koyach that the Ebeshter gave him that this koyach should touch them and change them and in so doing have two effects A, benefit them and B, secure the longevity of the Tayyid of Hasidus So for the big tzaddikim for the rabbis and the holy men the Baal Shem Tev began to teach Tayyid of the scholarship of Hasidus The scholarship of Hasidus is Tayyid it's intellectual it's very deep but the Tayyid as the Baal Shem Tev taught it the Hashem Tev is published. Whatever we have. We don't know everything Hashem Tev said during his lifetime because he didn't write it down. We have only what was written down. 
the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev are so deep, if you ever read any of them, that they read like fairy tales. In other words, you don't even see that they're deep. <laughs> the teachings of the Magid are deep, but you see that you don't understand, which means that they're not so deep. <laughs> the teachings of the Alter Rebbe are deep, but you can actually understand them. The Baal Shem Tev's teachings, you don't even, what's the big deal? Sounds to me like a meaningless medrash. You don't see the depth of Shem Tev's teachings because it's so deep, it just goes beyond you altogether. And the Baal Shem Tev taught this to a tiny, tiny group of carefully selected giants who would become the Hasidic masters of the next generation. And the package of Torah which he gave them took that power, wrapped it in a form that it can be transmitted. You can give it over from one person to another. Albeit in a very narrow group to a very select uh, kind of people. But nevertheless, it's here for somebody. I mean, Darizal taught, how many people Darizal teach altogether? A couple of dozen people. And it was enough. The Baal Shem Tev had 60 giants, Shishim Giboidim, that's the number which is usually given, based on all kinds of Hasidic sources. And these people were given the teachings of Hasidus. And the spirits of Hasidus, the idea of joy, not punishing the body, and above all else, for the Pashatayidim, for the Anoshim Shutim, the simple folk, whom the Baal Shem Tev had in the thousands and tens of thousands, they flocked to the Baal Shem Tev. It was a desperate time. Life was so hard. And here was his holy rabbi, who all he did was love him. Baal Shem Tev was incredible. He could love a sinner. He could love a murderer. Baal Shem Tev found a way of seeing good in every person. They flocked to him. The packaging they got from the Baal Shem Tev was quite different. They got a piece of cake. A smile. A little wine, a little filter fish, a piece of kugel, a little chont for the Baal Shem Tev's leftovers. Or a gutvart, a positive word, a beautiful nigan, a chassidish dance, and many, 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 many miracles. This was the packages. These were the forms. These were the wraps the Baal Shem Tev used to feed this possibility, this koyach, to people who couldn't understand it. <clears throat> The, in, in many Hasidic circles, this is not so much a part of the Chabad model, but in most Hasidic circles, a very important part of the Hasidic is what we call Shirayim, the leftovers of a tzaddik. Just like the Talmud says, the Gemara says that when a carbon was brought in the base of Mikdash, the Shirei carbon, the remnants, the leftovers of the carbon had such holiness in them, and when you would eat it, it would bring you to such great levels. There was a belief that when you eat the leftover food of a tzaddik, Gomer, a perfect tzaddik, Achilas Adam is the Ma'alim Achilas Mizbeach. It's even a higher Madrigid than the Mizbeach. And it says in Kabbalah and Chasidus, it hallifies the person. It makes the person holy. And people would come to the Bashamta for a piece of cake. They ate a piece of cake. It worked like magic. It warmed their hearts. Or the Nagunim and the miracles. And of course, over the course of time, it became built in the Hasidic culture, the art of storytelling, which is not just storytelling. Those stories are. The vehicle, they're the package for this koyach. Every time Hasidim sit around and tell Hasidish stories and they warm each other up, they're touching and being touched by the light of the Hilika Baal Shem Tev, which the Baal Shem Tev in his lifetime endeavored to immortalize. His physical presence we don't have, but his influence is very real because of his effort. In other words, he understood then that it is his mission to package Hasidish in such a form that it should survive him. It should last beyond his physical lifetime. And of course, probably the most important piece of packaging, the most important tool, the most important vehicle that the Baal Shem Tev and his followers used to bring Hasidus to the common person was this novel concept of traveling to the Tzadik. Going to the Holy Master. And yes, it's novel. If you have a connection to Hasidus, you never knew life could be any other way. But it's a big deal. A lot of people have problems with it. But at the center of Hasidus is the relationship between the common person and the Holy Master. In the belief that that relationship is so beneficial, it helps the person so much, going to the tzaddik, and all the inconveniences and time and effort and money expended in that endeavor, in that effort, this is the investment and the return is the holiness, is the warmth, is the joy, is the faith, is the humility that you get from that relationship with the tzaddik. And that relationship itself is the packaging, 
it itself, the connection between the common person and the tzaddik, is the way the Baal gave chassidus to the common person. And of course, it creates a dependency. You need to have a tzaddik to go to. And you need to visit the tzaddik. And you can't visit him once, you have to visit him repeatedly. But this is another very important piece of the Baal creativity. Baal had to create a way to ground Hasidus. The Hasidus should survive him. And what I just listed were a number of examples, a number of little things that became part of what is the mainstay, the center of the Hasidic culture that preserves Hasidus for Hasidus. We can't go to the Baal Shem Tov, unfortunately. You know, it's kind of difficult to find a place to go where you can meet anybody that's truly worthy of a name of a Hasidish Rebbe in the dark times in which we live. But Hasidus is here. We all benefit from it. We're all warmed by it. Because it's been brought into the world, brought into the world in such a way that it's here. And now it's simply a matter of putting our dish into the pot, drawing some out and drinking it. It's been preserved for us. It's here forever. And we're all benefiting from Hasidus. Now what about the Alter Rebbe? How does this tie to the Alter Rebbe? And if you haven't forgotten yet, this is a Tanya class. <laughs> you may not know it, but this is a Tanya class. The Holy Baal Shem Tev created Hasidus. And again, as you understand, I hope, he didn't create Hasidus. God created Hasidus. He created the form. He created the garments, the packaging, the techniques through which Hasidus can be communicated to the various different types of Jews who would benefit from it and so that it should be preserved. But the Bashemtiv understood that there's more to it. And part of what he understood was this. In his model, and in the model of his successor, the Holy Magid, there was a separation. Very, very great Hasidim, of whom there were very few. And we can't even call them Hasidim, we should really call them Talmidim, disciples. There was the Limud, the study of Hasidim. For everybody else, there was the inspiration. But there wasn't the study. There wasn't the intellectual dimension. The Baal Shem Tev understood that it is important for all Jews to have access to Hasidus, not only on the emotional and spiritual level, but also on the scholarly level, on the intellectual level. And he left this task to the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe was 15 years old when the Baal Shem Tev passed away. Al-Tarebbe was surrounded by Hasidim. His father was a Hasid and his mother was a Hasidah. His father, his grandfather, his, father's, his mother's father was a Hasidah. His uncle was a Hasid, his aunt was a Hasidah. His teachers were Hasidim. And the Al-Tarebbe never heard the name of the Baal name his entire childhood. He met him at his Apsheranis when his hair was cut. The Baal cut his hair. And the Baal told his mother and his aunt who brought him to the Baal that they're not allowed to tell him who he is. And they, they tried a million and one tricks. The kid kept asking, who was the man with the red beard who cut my hair and left me pays and blessed me? And they told him a million and one stories. The, Bash- the Al-Tarebbe couldn't be easily fooled. And try as they might, he'd wait five minutes and he'd ask the question again, who was the man with the red beard who cut my hair and so forth and so on. Until finally, after lying to him one time and a second time and a third time and a fourth time, the, um, one of the two people, either the Al-Tarebbe's mother or the Al-Tarebbe's aunt, said to the child, He's a grandfather. So the Al-Tarebbe stopped asking. The, the Al-Tarebbe kept asking, who was this, old, this man with the red beard? And when they told him, he, he stopped asking. When he was a great Hasidic Rebbe, he would call the Baal Shem Tev the Zayde. So they didn't fool him, apparently. When they told him Zayda, he understood that this was a Zayda, if not a biological one, a spiritual one. But the Baal Shem Tev told all the people who had any contact with Alter Rebbe, in the name of God, they shouldn't mention his name to him. They shouldn't, shouldn't. Should not. The Alter Rebbe was not allowed to know about the Baal Shem Tev. And there was a reason for that. Because the Baal Shem Tev understood that the Alter Rebbe has to be the third generation and not the second generation. Had the Alter Rebbe known the Baal Shem Tev, that would have made him connected directly to the Baal Shem Tev, he didn't want that. The Baal Shem Tev had many disciples. One of the last people to join the movement was the Holy Magad of Mezich, Abdaiv Ber of Mezich. When he came to the Baal Shem Tev, the Baal Shem Tev talked him into his room and he talked to him about succession. The Magad succeeded the Baal Shem Tev. 
and he told them about the Alter Rebbe. He told them about who his soul was. It was called a new soul, whatever that means. And the Bashemtiv said to the Magid, I want you to know that I have had Mesiris Nefesh. I have paid a very, very high price that he should not know me. Because he's yours, the Bashemtiv said. He belongs to you. And had he met me, it would interfere with his relationship with you. So know when he comes what's before you. But I must warn you, you're not allowed to go look for him. You're going to have to wait for him to come to you on his own. And then the Baal Shem Tev told the Magad instructions that when this new Neshama comes and the Rebbe comes, you should give him a variety of messages from the Helika Baal Shem Tev. The gist of those messages, the essence of those messages, was to tell the Alter Rebbe why he was born, why his Neshama came into this world and what is his mission. And to say it in a phrase, the Baal Shem Tev said to the Magad, tell him, tell the Alter Rebbe, that it is his function to quote bring Hasidus into Apnimius. I mean to say to make Hasidus something that people could internalize. Like food. Rather than be something which people could simply be inspired by, like cake, like a song, like a miracle, like traveling to a tzaddik, Hasidus can be something people could ingest, like food, which can digest and process and metabolize. And when you eat food, if you're only healthy... The food changes, it becomes you, and you change, you become the food you eat. This was the, the, the line, the message. The Baal Shem Tev told the Magad, tell him that it is his purpose to create a model and a form for Hasidus that would permit the internalization, the personalization of Hasidus. And it would change fundamentally the nature of the relationship between the Tzaddik and the common Hasid. The Tzaddik no longer would have the function of inspiring the Hasid. But instead, the tzaddik would have the function of teaching the chassid how to be self-inspired. The Alter Rebbe came to the Mithitcher Magid when he was either 18 and a half or 19 and a half. There's discrepancies in the history. The Magid waited for the Baal Shem Tev, for the Alter Rebbe either four years or five years. And he waited. He understood that this is very, very serious. The Alter Rebbe came. He stayed three weeks. And he decided to leave. He wasn't happy with what he saw. He saw holiness, he saw piety, he saw worship. He saw what it means to serve God, to actually pray to God and think about Him. But he didn't feel like there was enough yeshivish learning, enough Talmudic scholarship. They say he left. And he came back because he forgot something. And on his return trip, he was satisfied that the Talmud Yamagid are big Talmud Chacham and big Goinim. And he decided to stay. And he went into the Magid. And he introduced himself. The Holy Magid the Baal Shem Tev's successor was very, very different than his predecessor in many, many ways. I mean, they were literally diametrical opposites. And one of the most obvious, most striking differences was the Baal Shem Tev was so available to everybody. The Magwid was an extremely exclusive Rebbe. You had access to him if he chose you by name. There was no movement. There were individuals, select Sadiqim of the Magid selected to be his inner circle his followers, and he related only to them and to nobody else. And he created, in effect, a pyramid model of Hasidus. The Magid dealt with tzaddikim, big tzaddikim, perfect tzaddikim, and they all had a following. And it began the radiation of Hasidus, the diversification, the radiation of Hasidus. During the Magid's lifetime, he was involved with a handful of people. And many, many great rabbis and scholars came to Mizrich only to be told that they, they, don't, they don't add up. They're not good enough. Most of them left. Some of them stuck around to serve the Talmud of Hashem. Al-Tarebbe was a kid. He wasn't even 20 years old. Nobody whom the Magid accepted into his inner circle was that young. They were all much older. They were in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And here this boy shows up. <coughs> and now that the Magid embraces him, he makes him uh, chassid number one. He, he clearly favors him. And they all saw it. When he came into the Magid, the Alter Rebbe introduces himself and he tells the Magid, I came here that you should teach me how to serve God. And he told the Magid his concerns. And there are two points that I want to share because they're both incredible to me. The first thing the Alter Rebbe says to his future Rebbe, the Mizitcher Magid, was he tells him, In my entire life, I have never worked hard at anything. 
Now the Alter Rebbe not only knew Torah and Kabbalah, he knew medicine and astronomy and mathematics and all the sciences that were known then, he had mastered. And he was a kid. He said, I've never struggled. It's all been easy. It's been automatic. And I feel unwhole. I feel fundamentally lacking. Because I know the Gemara says, If you have gifts, you haven't earned, you don't really possess them. So Dr. Abbas said, Test me. You know, Stretch me. Make me work. Make me sweat. And the second point Alter Rebbe told the Magid, which is even deeper than the first was, is I've never had a teacher. Now he had many teachers. Someone taught him how to read. But nobody could tame the Alter Rebbe. All the people who tutored him were less than him. And he would pass them by. You know, after a few weeks, he moved on to the next teacher. I need a teacher. I need someone bigger than me who can give me direction, who can focus me. And as the previous Rebbe says, the Alter Rebbe got more than he dreamed he could get. But the Magid. the Magid was big enough to be the Alter Rebbe's Rebbe. And he was able to bring the best out of the Alter Rebbe and teach the Alter Rebbe how, he, first of all, he could serve Hashem. And second of all, how he could fulfill his purpose, which he was born in the first place, which was to create Chabad Hasidus. And after the Alter Rebbe finished with his grievances, the Magid says, well, now let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> he says, first of all, I want you to know, I know about you. And I've been waiting for you. The Helik of Hashem told me about you. And he told me that I have to wait for you to come on your own. And don't think for a moment that your departure from Azich the first time and your coincidental return and your decision to stay was coincidental at all. It was all orchestrated. He says, and now I want you to tell you what the Hashem told me to share with you. And he told the Alter Rebbe that he's a new Neshama. And he said to him, if you think you haven't worked hard in your life, you have no idea what's in for you. You're going to be exhausted by the time it's over. Your life is going to be a very challenging life. The Magid tells the Alter Rebbe all the time. I mean, it must be a lot of fun. Your rabbi says to you, my brother, you're going to have a miserable life. <laughs> but the Alter Rebbe was a caliph for it. The Magid told it to him all the time. Right before he passed away, those his last words, so the Alter Rebbe, you're going to have a very hard time. But me and the Baal Shem will always be around to help you out. He says, Torah was given to you by Matana. Torah was given to you for free as a gift. Because you have so much work to do that this much ease had to be provided. And then he told him what the Baal Shem said. You have to create the next tier, the next dimension of Hasidus. A Hasidus that permits the light and the energy and the holiness of Hasidus that we've been talking about now for all this time to be internalized. And this became the Alter purpose. He spent 40 years of his life creating what we call Teiras Hasidus Chabad. Chochma bin Adas. That means in simple words, perhaps simplistic words, but certainly simple words, to find a package, to find a lavush, a garment, a vehicle for Hasidus, that allows a chassid to bring it into himself so that it changes the nature of the dependency of the chassid upon his Rebbe. The Rebbe no longer inspires. The Rebbe teaches. You must inspire yourself. The technique that the Rebbe chose, now understand, just like the Baal Shem Tev, God gave him the power and he created the, the package, it was his creativity. The Baal Shem Tev gave the Alter Rebbe the power and the Alter Rebbe created the package. So the mission, the purpose, the goal was set for him by the Baal Shem Tev. But the work, the Alter Rebbe had to do himself. And the technique that he chose was to intellectualize Hasidus. Which is a weird kind of thing. Because we always associate intellect with, with, with uh, being impersonal, cold, distant. We all understand that Hasidus is passion. It's, it's, it's power. And to create a Hasidus where the mind itself is the garment that carries this light and this passion is a very, very unusual thing to contemplate. And it was what the Alter Rebbe endeavored to do and he did it with a remarkable degree of success. The cold intellectual Maimore Hasidus that you can read and of which there are tens of thousands of Chabad alone, I'm talking. Warm you. Sometimes you don't even know why. 
because they're so intellectual, and yet they touch the soul, not just the mind. This was the Alter Rebbe's mission, and he devoted his entire life to creating a Hasidus that would change the nature of the relationship between the Hasid and the Tzaddik. The Hasid no longer gets the Hasidus directly from the Tzaddik. The Hasid gets teachings and direction from the Tzaddik. But you must make yourself a Hasid. Because the Rebbe is not going to do that for you. That you have to do for yourself. And the Rebbe's technique was Chachum Bidavadas. Now, understand along these lines that since the Alter Rebbe, like the Baal Shem Tev, understood that his mandate is not to influence a few people. But his mandate is that he should create Hasidus and that Hasidus should take root. So that when his physical life ends, Hasidus should live on. Hasidus should be permanently in this world. The Alter Rebbe had to take special care that his creation, his creation of Hasidus shouldn't just be something which is useful for a few people during his lifetime, but that through those people, those people should become the roots and the anchors that preserve the Hasidus Chabad should be until this very day. Therefore, when the Alter Rebbe started the Hasidic Chabad movement, he did it in small baby steps, which are all recorded in the Chabad history. He would constantly modify Hasidus. I suppose... In the most generous of terms, you could say that the Alter Rebbe spent 40 years of his life. The Alter Rebbe was around 33. I'm sorry, around 28, when his Rebbe, the Maggid, passed away. And he passed away at the age of 68. So he spent 40 years creating the Chabad model. And uh, if you pay attention to the history, you watch the evolution. And the evolution was at the very, very beginning... He was extremely exclusive. He handpicked his God, his followers. And the first followers of the Alter Rebbe were giants. Giants. Giants of Torah. Giants of Avoida. And giants of Neshama. In other words, the first Talmudim of the Alter Rebbe could have been Rebbe's themselves. They knew the whole Torah by heart. And that was just the beginning. These were extraordinary servants of Hashem. And the Alter Rebbe conditioned them tutor them, there's an expression in one of the sikhs, like a child plays with his fingers. He was involved in every minutia of their lives. Because he saw in them not just a few people he was influencing. He saw in them the roots that would preserve Chabad for posterity. And those roots needed to be healthy. So the very, very foundation of Hasidus Chabad was a tiny little inner circle of truly extraordinary people who the Alter Rebbe committed himself to, delved into their lives and direct, counseled them. A, he made them chassidim of the highest possibility. You know, if you wanted to use numbers, you could ask this question, what percentage of our potential do we realize? 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. The Chassidim were delivering 90%, 95%, 98%. It was... He was bringing them to excellence, to perfection, to wholeness. But he saw in them not just themselves, he saw in them the, the legacy, the, the longevity, the foreverness of Teres Chassidus Chabad. And every five years, he'd relax the standard. He'd invite lesser people into the movement and make Chassidus available to people who are on a lower level. Because Chabad was never meant to be exclusive. Just like Chassidus in general, was not meant to be exclusive. It was meant for everybody, but the roots have to be healthy. When the tree is young, it has to be very, very carefully tended. And the Alter Rebbe did that. When he first became a Rebbe, he established what was called Chadarim. That means grades. Three Chadarim, three grades. The highest grade was called grade one. The second grade, the second level was called grade two. Five years later, he added a lower level called grade three. And he put you where he wanted. You didn't go where you wished he put you into one of these grades and he involved himself with each grade separately. In other words, if you were in grade one, you had special time for the Alter Rebbe. He said Hasidus to you when he taught you how to serve Hashem. You were not permitted into the teachings of grade two and grade three, even though they were lower than you. And vice versa. It was very, very carefully governed and monitored. And you couldn't move from grade to grade because you felt like you were ready to graduate. The Alter Rebbe had to decide for you. And like I said to you, every five years he would relax the standard and open it up more. 
these early Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe had the ear of the Alter Rebbe. They talked to him whenever they needed to. And they didn't talk to him about politics or about money or about problems. They talked to him about serving God. And the Alter Rebbe counseled them and gave them very specific instructions about Avodah Hashem that reflected their own personal needs. There never was and there never going to be a one-size-fits-all way of serving God. It's very personal because it's called in Tanya, right? Serving God is intimate. It has to do with our soul and no two souls are alike and therefore no two servants of God are equal. Now the Rebbe gave each one instructions based on what they needed. And if it wasn't sufficient, they would come back again and get further instructions. These meetings adopted the name Yechides, private audiences. They would walk into the Alter Rebbe, they would have candles on the table, he'd be wearing his Shabbos clothes and his gantel. And when he met a chosid for Yechides, it wasn't only the chosid who showed up. The Alter Rebbe himself would show up. It was a very deep meeting. It was a meeting of two souls, not a meeting of two minds. In our culture, we call it a meeting of Yechid and Yechida. The very essence of the soul of the Rebbe would meet the very essence of the soul of the chosid. They would commune, they would meet, and the instruction that the Rebbe gave to the chosid came not just from the mind, but from the soul. And one piece of instruction was enough for a lifetime. And over the course of years, there were more and more people in the movement on the one hand, and they were of lesser and lesser quality on the other. Trust me, the smallest of the Rebbe's Hasidim would mop the floor with all the Gedolim of our times. But relative to the others, they were on a lower level. Until it got to a point where the Rebbe felt that he simply could no longer continue the tradition of Yechidus. It was, un- it was unviable, it was unsustainable. The idea that every single chassid should get personal instruction out of the Rebbe, whenever they need it, based on their particular level, was simply unsustainable. There were too many chassidim of too many different levels, including chassidim who didn't need the Alter Rebbe. They weren't that great. They could have dealt with some of the Alter Rebbe's disciples. And it was at this point that the Alter Rebbe contemplated writing a book. Not a book of stories or a philosophy, but a book of instructions. A book that would record all of the instructions that he provided to all the various different chassidim who visited him and Yechidis so that every chassid had access to this information. And of course, most important of all, we would have access to this information. 200 years later, the Rebbe passed away in 1812. Now it's 2009. It's almost 200 years since the Rebbe says Talkas. We are Chabad chassidim, not because those chassidim visited the Alter Rebbe in person, but because the Alter Rebbe wrote them down in a book called Tanya. So the Alter Rebbe came to the conclusion that it was time to record these pieces of counsel for various reasons. A, uh, this is perhaps my own insight, because they didn't need the Alter Rebbe anymore. They weren't that great. The Hasid, they were not such a high level that they needed such personal involvement. B, there were simply too many of them. And C, it would preserve it forever. It wouldn't just be something that is involving the Alter Rebbe personally and the Hasid personally, but it would be a, a, a koyach, a power that's been grounded in this earth represented by a real book that you can reprint and retype and interpret and write notes on and commentaries on that would make this new technique of serving Hashem which is Hasidus, which comes from the Baal Shem Tev. but the unique packaging of Chabad which is the Alter Rebbe's contribution to make Hasidus available to Jews who would never, could never meet the Alter Rebbe because he passed away so long ago so the Alter Rebbe proceeded to prepare to record the Sefer Tanya Kaddish. And in our culture, in our tradition, there is a Masoida that says that the Tanya went through four evolutionary steps over the course of two decades, 20 years. Alter Rebbe worked at Tanya for 20 years. The first was the aforementioned Yechides. Chassidim would visit Alter Rebbe in person. Alter Rebbe would engage with Lakin, with each Chassid. And the Chassidim had to lock in with the Alter Rebbe, but to be really there. I don't mean intellectually, I mean emotionally and spiritually there, and get direction. At a certain point, the Al-Tarebbe started to say my speeches. Al-Tarebbe spoke regularly, he had regular divinitera, but from time to time, he would incorporate into his speeches some of the instructions that he had normally given to Hasidim in private. He started this process of reciting the council, the Aetis, on the day his grandson and the successor of his successor, the Heilike Tzemach Tzedek, was born. 
And he finished it several years later on the birthday of his own son who would succeed in the middle of Rebbe, Tess Kislev. It took him a number of years from Rebbe Shana Tavkov Nuan until Tess Kislev, either Tavkov Nuan, I'm not sure about this detail. And um, as soon as he'd finished reciting the Maimorim over the course of several years, as soon as he finished the oral recital, he started to write it down, which is the third form. But he didn't write it down as a book. He wrote it down as articles, like essays. He wrote an essay and gave it out. The Hasidim gobbled it up. They copied it and recopied it and recopied it. Because the Al-Tarebbe did not write Hasidus. Most of what we have from the Al-Tarebbe's writings is actually Nigla. Most of the Al-Tarebbe's writings is Halacha, the Shulchan Aruch, the Chuvis. He wrote very little Hasidus. He spoke Hasidus. And others recorded what he said, but he himself wrote very little of Kabbalah and Hasidus. It was too difficult for him to do. So now he's writing. They gobbled it up. And as the time passed, Hasidim started to realize that there's actually a structure here. He's not just writing individual essays. There's a model. There's a vision. And over the course of several years, he wrote the entire Tanya and distributed over the, in the course of, of, let's say, 30 or 40 pamphlets. The Tanya, the original Tanya, was about 65 chapters. The first section of Tanya, which we have, was 51 chapters. The second section of the chapter was 13 chapters, and that was it. Just two books. About a decade later, he would add the third section, which was the treatise on Chuma. The rest of the book of Tanya was published by his children after his passing. Those are his letters and his notes. They were not part of the Tanya. They were never meant to be part of the Tanya, but they decided to publish them together. They started to write the Tanya. At first, Hasidim were very thrilled, but then they were not so happy. Why? Because the Alter Rebbe became less available. Hasidim wanted to do the traditional Yechidus, and the Alter Rebbe said, not necessary, read the pamphlets. And the Hasidim said, whoa, you can take your pamphlets back. <laughs> That's not a deal. <laughs> you give us paper instead of a personal meeting. Hasidim would spend years and years preparing themselves to meet the Alter Rebbe face to face so that they can have this very soul connection between them and their Rebbe so that they could get personal instruction how they as individuals should serve the Eibishter and it's been cancelled by a book. And the Alter Rebbe insisted, yes, it must be. Yechidus never fully stopped, but it never continued with the same centricity for all the reasons I outlined before. And the Alter Rebbe implemented certain things to, so to speak, enlighten the Hasidim as to the absolute necessity for the Sefer Tani Kaddisha. And one of them was the model, which to this day is very, very much a part of the Chabad Hasidic model. It's the concept called Mashpiyim, spiritual counselors. The idea that you can't just read the Tanya in order to be a chassid. You need a teacher. Who doesn't want to teach you the meaning of the words and the concepts, but teaches you how to discover yourself and to figure out how the Tanya was written for you. Because it wasn't written the same way for every person. Tanya is, is a gigantic book. Not in terms of its size, but in terms of its message. That speaks to so many people. But it doesn't say the same thing to everybody. It says many different things to many different people. And every person needs to find what the Tanya's message is to him personally or to her personally with the help of Zekeinim Shabira, his Mashpia. Once the Tanya had been transcribed and distributed in pamphlets, it was settled. As far as the Alter Rebbe was concerned, it was a done deal. No need to do anything further. But once the Hasidim realized that the Alter Rebbe meant it, they said to the Alter Rebbe, publish, print. It would have been a great honor for the Alter Rebbe it would have been much more efficient for Hasidim because you know what happens people copy just keep creating new mistakes and then when you fix mistakes you make the mistakes even bigger as everybody knows and al refused until it became obvious that the Misnagdim were distributing forged copies of the book deliberate forgeries to discredit the al Rebbe al Rebbe said okay time to publish so thanks to the Misnagdim we have a printed Zefer Tanya Kedisha and when the al Rebbe tried to publish it he rewrote the whole book start to finish we wrote it with, with relatively small modifications, some very large ones, but he literally edited the book. He went through the book line by line, word by word, and fixed it, refined it. And in Tovkov and Zayin, that would be the very, very end of 1796, the title was published. Two years later, Dalton would be arrested, 
and put in jail, and the Altarebbe would say that one of the schusim that protected me and saved me during my arrest was the two years of Avoidus Hashem that had been created by the dissemination of the published Tanya. How many people had touched and their lives were changed? So this is not just the background of the Tanya, but it's the insight into what the Tanya was meant to be. If anybody tells you that Tanya is a philosophy book, they just don't get it. There is a theological section to the Tanya. The second book of Tanya is called Shari Yechad is a philosophical treatise. It's, it's one of the most profound philosophical treatises on Achas Hashem and the unity of God. But even that, and certainly the Sefer Shalbeinah, the book of intermediates, which is most of the time, the 53 chapters, it wasn't meant to give us ideas. It was meant to be a personal conversation between the Alter Rebbe and each Jew about themselves, about their lives, about their identities, and about their relationships with God. Tanya's Lakuta Yetzis, it's a collection of counsel. I'll call Ashailis and all the questions that Hasidim have asked me. said, so you no longer need to go into Al-Trebbe to Yechidis. You can read your Sefer Tanya Kadisha and you're meeting the Al-Trebbe personally, face to face, and getting instructions from him about how you need to serve Hashem within the framework of the Hasidic model and more narrowly within the framework of the Chabad Hasidic model, as we've been discussing for the last hour. So, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be journeying through the Tanya. Mr. Shem, we're starting next week. And hopefully, we won't just talk about the philosophy of the Tanya, hopefully we can actually appreciate the relevance of the Tanya to us in our own practical lives. Um, so that we too could be touched by the Tanya, which is what the, what the Altar wished. In conclusion, I just want to say one more thing. Chasidus Chabad and the Tanya and the Alter Rebbe changed the nature of Chasidus. In Chabad Chasidus, eating the cake of a tzaddik is almost a no-no. It's certainly not a centerpiece of the Chasidus. The Rebbe Rashab used to say, Shirayim from a tzaddik are mezakeh, maim shirayim amachayev. Usually you eat the food of a tzaddik and it makes you holier. My food makes demands. <laughs> Doesn't make life easier for you, it makes life more difficult. In the Chabad Hasidic model, the role of the Rebbe was no longer to inspire, the role of the Rebbe was to teach. The inspiration has to come from ourselves. Avoid the the work you have to do on your own. And in our era, in the modern times, the expression of this, which is so obvious, is the whole concept of shlichus. You know, in the history of Hasidus, the holy masters were all involved in Kiruv. They're all embracing simple people and unlearned people and rebellious Jews, renegades, and bringing them into the fold. But the idea that you take common people like you and like me and empower them that they should be makar of people is very radical. And I myself have heard from a number of relatives I have who are not Chabad Hasidim. Whoever heard of Shlichim, a Rebbe, Tzadik, makes people return to God. But what's this business about shlichus? It's, it's completely consistent with the unique type of chasidus that chasidus was meant to be. Rebbe doesn't do the job for us. We have to do the job for ourselves. He helps. He blesses. And he's holy. And holy blessings work pretty good. But the arba daf the work we do on our own. This is the essence of it. Okay?